Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's one of the great chapters of the Old Testament. If you were preaching a series or teaching a series on the great chapters of the Old Testament, you would have to include Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's set it in context. Israel in Deuteronomy is about to enter the land of Canaan, enter the land that God had promised them after 40 years in the wilderness. In the sermon that we have, it's a sermon preached by Moses, that we have in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God tells Israel through Moses, he reminds them of the wilderness experience, what they've been through, and that he was trying to show them in that wilderness experience that they could only live, they, they only lived every day by every word that came through the mouth of God. They didn't live by bread alone, meaning by their own work. They lived by every word that came through the mouth of God. Their lives were dependent upon him. That was what the wilderness experience taught them. He sent the manna. He sent the quail. He gave them water. He provided for them for, for all those years. That's what Deuteronomy 8 says. But it's also a warning there in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, you're coming into a land where there's going to be great prosperity. It's not going to be like the wilderness. You're going to become wealthy. You're going to become people of substance. You're not going to... To, to be nomads wandering any longer. You're going to have houses and homes and farms and cities. <clears throat> he said the great temptation will be, look what we've done. The great temptation will be to forget God, forget that he is the one that gives you everything that you have. The great temptation will be to say, look what, I've accomplished in my ingenuity and the strength of my arm. That's Deuteronomy chapter 8. Well, why is, the, <clears throat> why is the passage in Nehemiah there? In Nehemiah, the people are coming back from Babylon. The remnant of Israel has returned to Jerusalem. They've been there 70 years. God had told Israel when they entered the land, that every year in the fall, they were to have the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, we could say tents. So when you read that word tabernacle, don't think of a, the, their church building, but, but think of a tent. Uh, <clears throat> dwellings like they had when they were in the wilderness. Thank you. And that they were to build these booths these little temporary dwellings for a week, for 10 days. They, they had specific places they built them. They could build them in their courtyards. They could build them outside the city. And we saw in the text this morning that they had places where they gathered and built these booths. And it was going back <clears throat> to the temporary dwellings that they had when they were in the wilderness. They were remembering the wilderness, <clears throat> the wilderness experience. They were, they were remembering that, God gave them everything that they had. But it was also a time of feasting. It was, they feasted during this time. So it was remembering the wilderness, but also feasting on the great blessings that God had given them in the land. 
So that's why these scriptures are there. The title of the message this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, the title of the message this morning, Gratitude to God, a battle of the soul. And it is indeed a battle of the soul. For years, when I served Independent Presbyterian Church, I kept a candy bowl, large bowl just filled with candy on my office desk. I had to keep a stash to keep it supplied. For over the years, all the kids in the church discovered that candy bowl. Right up, it started when they were little and right up through their teenage years and through their college years. Plus, all the adult members knew where that candy bowl was in my office. I had, I, I had a policy of just keeping my door open unless there was a private conversation happening and a significant conversation happening. My door stayed open so you could get to the candy bowl. There were certain laws that I had about that candy bowl. Parents would tell their children, you can only get one piece. I had a different law for that candy bowl and for the children who came into the office. I would tell them, you can take as much as you want, but you can't have just one piece. Oh, the parents love me for that. There are some stories. I've got all kinds of stories about that candy bowl for children and adults. But one of my favorite was a mother had come into the office <clears throat> with her toddler and very, very young. But he was out there on his own and she was talking to the secretary and had brought something by that she needed to, to leave at the church. And this little boy wandered into my office. And so I knew him, and I picked up a piece of candy. And I said, take a piece of candy from my candy bowl. And he took it, and he unwrapped it. And he took a little taste test. And he must have liked it because he finished unwrapping it, and he was just about to put it in his mouth. And the words that all of us have said, that all of us heard, came from his mother. George, say thank you to Mr. Sartell. And the <clears throat> candy got closer to his mouth. It was like he did not hear her. She stepped closer and she said, George, I said you thank Mr. Sartell. He turned his back to her like, I'm not listening to you. And then she came, got right down next to him, kneeled down, said, George, I told you, you turn and you say thank you to Mr. Sartell. He was just about to put it in his mouth, and her hand was quicker than his. She snatched that candy from him. She held it in front of him. George, I will give this back to you. You're going to turn around and say thank you to Mr. Sartell. Well, that wasn't going to happen. Not then, not that day. It was not going to happen. She be he began to cry. He took on the appearance of being greatly injured. 
And she said, say thank you. But he was resolute. Her eyes were resolute. His eyes were resolute. I tried to kind of ease the tension and say, that's, that's okay. But nothing I said would make any difference. So I just kept quiet. The candy was wrapped in a tissue and thrown in the trash can. Mother grabbed her son by the hand. and She pulled him from the office. He didn't have any candy in his hand, but he was not beaten. He had a measure of victory. His will had prevailed. He had not been forced to say those demanded words. Thank you. <clears throat> I had wanted to take his part. I had wanted to say, hey, it's not that important. I had wanted somehow to slip the candy to him without his mother knowing it. But I couldn't do that. Because I had not only played the part that that little boy played at his age, I would played that part. But I would also played the part of a parent who was obsessed with my child saying thank you for anything he or she received. Now, when, as grandparents, when we witness that, we want to say to that mother, lighten up, let him have the candy. But if we say that, people, we're not good theologians. In fact, we're not even good Christians. In fact, we're theological heretics, if that's the way we think. Where did this mother get her strong conviction that her child would say, thank you for anything received? Is she just a purist about manners? Is she demanding that her child be polite? No, this mother... It turns out was a practicing theologian. All mothers should be. All mothers and fathers should be practicing theologians. We've said it over and over again in this place. Our children get their first basic theology, not from the church, but from their home, from their parents. It is essential that mothers and dads be theologians. And this mother was. This mother knew that God is deliberately passionate about his children living thankful lives. Listen to him. It's there on your scripture sheet. Now remember, this is God's word. This is God speaking. Look at Psalm 50, 14. And I could have literally quoted thousands of verses. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Psalm 9, 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Psalm 118, 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And then there's that wonderful psalm of thanksgiving, Psalm 100, that we sang this morning. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord is good. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. You come through those doors with thanksgiving. You come through those doors with a thankful heart. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good. Hundreds, thousands of times he tells his children in scripture to be thankful to him. Whole chapters of the Bible are devoted to this subject. He told them 
in your everyday life, down on the farm, out in the market, when you harvest a field, bring the very first part of that harvest, the very first fruits or grains from that field, you bring it to the tabernacle. Thus, you are giving thanks and saying everything that comes out of that field comes from the Lord. He was the one that provided. He warned us. In the passage we read this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 8, he warned Israel. Look at Deuteronomy 8, 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and you're full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. Then verse 17 Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. God knew that we would have the same heart as little George. It would be a battle of the soul. It would not be easy for us to say thank you to him. He said it would be, in fact, one of the distinguishing marks of his people. You know what? We're living in a culture that's running hell-mill as fast as it can away from God, away from his word. You do understand, don't you, that the majority of this country, well, they'll celebrate Thanksgiving Day, but they won't be giving thanks to God. He said the life of the world would be marked by their thanklessness to him. Look at Romans 121. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Here's the world. A mark of the world is that they will not give thanks to God. The mark of God's people is that in all things they will give thanks to him. Look at Ephesians 5.20. I love this verse giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. <laughs> I love that. Always about everything. You just, it's, it's just all inclusive. Always and about everything. That mother was a great theologian. She was just demanding what God demands. Say thank you, George. Say thank you for everything you receive. We cannot get away with merely saying, well, I'll thank God. Because he is the true giver. George could have said that. Well, Mom, I'll thank God. But that does not mean I must thank the individuals who give it to me. Thanking God involves thanking the people through whom he bestows his blessing. The God of the Bible is intent that his children learn to say, thank you. He's passionate that his children Learn to say thank you for everything received, great and small, all the time, every day. Is it a matter of manners? Is it only that God wants us to be polite? 
Why is this so important? He speaks more about this than he does the sin of murder. Think about that. There's more about thanksgiving in Scripture than there is about murder. Why? I'm going to give you three reasons. First, saying thank you to God is a theological confession of dependence. Saying thank you to God is a theological expression, confession of dependence. When we say thank you, we are saying it is he who has made us, not we ourselves. What do we say at the beginning of every day? We confess that this is a day from the Lord. We get up. This is a day, what? The Lord has made. This is a day the Lord has given to me. Every moment, every minute, this is a day. And it's a confession of dependence. Not by my power, not by the strength of my hands has this wealth been produced. God often speaks to us if we watch from his word in the everyday world that we encounter. A few weeks ago, I was, Terry and I had one evening, had a rack of lamb that we prepared. And I can't prepare a rack of lamb without thinking about the Brittany Spaniel that the Lord gave me several years ago. Uh, most of you somewhere along the way encountered Jack. Um, we had to put him down about three years ago. But every time I, I cook lamb, I think about him, or a rack of lamb, I think about him. He loved, he loved taking one of those ribs, what was remaining of the rib bone after we had eaten. And I would give him that bone. I would give Jack that bone. And he just wouldn't take it and begin to chew on it. He would... He would lie down on the floor and place both paws over that bone. And he would just look at it. And he would smell it. And he would touch it. And he would play with it. So excited about it. And then came the moment that he put it in his mouth and he would begin to crush it. I've never understood how a dog does this. He eats. He, there would be nothing of that bone left in just a few minutes. But the ritual was not complete. He would come to wherever I was, if I was sitting down, whatever. He would come and he would lick my hands. And if I bent down, he would lick my face. God talks about this in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3. The ox knows its owner. The donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. Jack was smarter than the folks of our secular culture. He was coming and saying, that was good. That was so good. The world eats God's food, drinks his water, breathes his air, enjoys the health that he gives. And the great majority do not come to him on the first day of the week and say, thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Now, what do they say? They say, and you'll encounter it. I'll encounter people this week. I love this. 
and you'll say, you know, it's a real time to be thankful. I'm, I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for my family. You go to your friends. Go to your non-Christian friends and ask them, you know, what are you thankful for? And they're going to say, oh, we're thankful. We're thankful for them. Thankful to whom? I mean, you've got to have someone to whom you say thank you. To whom do you go to give thanks? And there's this vagueness about it. What they're really celebrating is their own success and what they've been able to somehow attain. I'm thankful I've been able to do this. That's not the thanksgiving God is talking about. In fact, he talks about this in Psalm 2. It's there on your scripture sheet. Look at it. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. What are they taking counsel against? What are the kings setting themselves against? Against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds. Let's burst the bonds of the Lord and his anointed. Let's cast away their cords on us. We do not want to be bound to him. That perfectly describes our culture. We don't want to be dependent on him. We're self-made people. We're self-sustaining people. Question. Can you eat enough in a day to last you eight months? Some of us will try that this Thursday. We'll be stuffed and we'll say, I'm not going to eat again for a week. I'm not going to eat again for a month. God created our systems to need daily sustenance. It's God's way of causing us to see that we're dependent on him every day for food. Can you take enough air into your lungs with one breath to sustain your life for 24 hours? No. It's God's way of making us remember that we're dependent on him every minute of every day. We don't breathe. We don't eat unless he provides. Saying thank you to God is a theological confession of your dependence. That's what you can say to your family this Thursday morning. Saying thank you to God. This is a thanksgiving day to God. We're feasting in thanksgiving to God. Confessing our dependence. Secondly, saying thank you is a theological confession that we're undeserving. It's a theological confession of grace when you say thank you. What did we read a few minutes ago from Ephesians 5.20? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. Giving thanks assumes grace. It assumes we did not earn it. We don't go. You don't go every week and thank your employer for the wages you're being paid. Those wages are earned. We give thanks to God for giving us the strength and ability to work. That is grace. When can we ever hold something up? Can I hold this pair of glasses up? And say, Father, I don't need to thank you for this. I earned it. I don't need to thank you for this watch. I don't need to thank you for my children. I don't need to thank you for the rain outside. Because I deserve it. What can you say that about? Tell me. Answer me. 
Father, I don't need to thank you for this. I earned it. No. Dwight L. Moody, the great evangelist of 19th century, said this. It is well, quote, it is well that man cannot save himself, for if a man could only work his own way to heaven, you would never hear the last of it. Why, if a man happens to get a little ahead of his fellows and scrapes a few thousand dollars together, you hear him boast of being a self-made man. I've heard so much of this sort of talk that I'm sick and tired of the whole business, and I'm glad that through all eternity in heaven, we will never hear anyone bragging of how he worked his way to get there. That's difficult. We say, I'm a thankful person. Really? How many times have we said, I don't want to be a charity case? That's what we're doing in Thanksgiving. We're confessing we are charity cases. I read a story this week about James, a minister, James Cahey. He had a friend, another minister, and his friend, that minister, was dying. He went to see him. He had to travel some miles, but he, he went to see him to cheer him, to encourage him. When he walked in, he asked his friend, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? And his friend answered, doing, doing? I will tell you what I'm doing. I'm gathering together all my prayers and all my sermons, all my good deeds and all my bad deeds, and I'm throwing them all overboard. Then I'm sailing to glory on the plank of God's free grace. That's what we're doing every day. We're moving steadily towards glory, physically and spiritually, held in God's hand, dependent on him, dependent on his grace. Saying thank you to God is a theological confession of dependence. Saying thank you is a theological confession that we're undeserving. Saying thank you is a theological confession of his greatest blessing. What a tragedy it would be to know that God is there, to know all of these physical blessings come from him, to thank him for the food and clothing and job and family, to know all of this, but to miss the greatest blessing. What do you treasure most? What's your greatest treasure as an individual, as a family? What's our, what is our greatest blessing? In Philippians 3, and I hope you're able to say this. I hope this becomes your statement. It was Paul's statement in Philippians 3, 7. But whatever was profit, in other words, whatever God gave me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Can you look at all the blessings that God has given you, even your family? Even your marriage, your home, your car, your job, everything. Can you say, I count all those things as a loss compared to the surpassing 
value of knowing Jesus Christ. He even says, I consider them rubbish. All of his other blessings and gifts, we love them. They're good things. But they're trash compared to Christ. You know, we said this in our study on sanctification. As we talked about the motivation. What's our motivation to live these holy lives? You know, we said that that day. You know, give me this watch. Give me these glasses. He can give me this suit. He gives me my wife, my children. That doesn't cost God a thing. He can just command in that But to save me, to save me from my own demise, from my own sin, from his judgment. It cost him the life of his own son. Remember he said, you live this kind of life. You live with reverence. Why? Knowing that you were bought. With a price. In all the universe, no greater price has ever been paid than what the Father paid for you, for your salvation. Saying thank you is a theological confession of, content, of, of dependence. Saying thank you is a theological confession of his grace. Saying thank you is a theological confession of his greatest blessing. But I can't stop there. We're at the end. In thanksgiving, in thanksgiving to God, there must always be something else there. Always. In expressing thanks to God, there must always be feasts of celebration. At the beginning of the message, we put these texts in their historical context. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles were ordered by God so that Israel would remember their complete dependence on God during the 40 years of being in the wilderness. In that Feast of Booths, they were to prepare these, these temporary tents, these temporary little dwellings, just to remind them of the hardship of the wilderness. But at the same time, every day, for seven days, they were to feast, recognizing the wonderful provision that God has made in this land. Now, Nehemiah, they had been down in Babylon for 70 years. For 70 years, they had not kept the Feast of Booths, but they were now back in Jerusalem. And they heard God's word read, and, and they read what they hadn't heard. Some of these were hearing that some of these people were hearing it for the first. This feast of booths, we're supposed to do that. That's, that's what was happening in Nehemiah 8. And they were feasting. I want you to look at it now and see this feast. Look at Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12, and then we're done. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, 
And Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, now look at this. Go your way. Eat the fat. Eat the richness. And drink the sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people saying, be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make rejoicing. No, to make great rejoicing. Do you understand? The God of the Bible was telling them. No, he was commanding them to feast. And this was not a one day feast. This was not just on Thursday afternoon. This was a feast that lasted Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. No. Why did God do this? We love giving gifts to our children, don't we? And our grandchildren. We live, we love giving them gifts that were probably better gifts than we got. More than we got. And we love seeing them celebrate. We love seeing their laughter, playing with it, enjoying these things. It's a blessing to us. What would you think if you gave your child or grandchild a really, really nice gift? And he, he just tossed it aside as if it was nothing. You want that child to laugh, to experience excitement over such a gift. People... Our Father is blessed, blessed by our feasting. Commands us to feast. You enjoy it. I was not taught this in the church when I was young. I was not taught this when I was growing up in the church. It's a great failure. My prayer for you. So Christian, my prayer for me, my prayer for Christ Presbyterian Church is that we will be known. This, this, <clears throat> yesterday I was talking about this with Terry. And I said, Terry, what are the characteristics? What are the characteristics of thankful people? Christian thankful people. What are the characteristics? And right away, she didn't hesitate. She said, humility. She was right. That's number one on my list of a characteristic of thankful people. Humbleness. They know they're dependent. They know their charity cases. And then she quickly added contentment. And then she added joy and happiness. And I said, you left off one thing. What did I leave off? Feasting. Feasting. Eat the fat. Read these scriptures to your family this Thursday. And understand that we're not only just to be a humble people, contented people, happy people. 
Jerusalem. We're to be a feasting people. Is that how we're known? Is that how you're known? I hope so.